If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, uh, look at, uh, turn to Ezra. Um, our text for today will be chapters 4 through 6. Uh, it's a long passage of Scripture. Uh, we're going to try to track through it, uh, try to see what is there, uh, what the Holy Spirit intends to speak and help us understand in the course of these things. Um, this is the third week of our nine-week series here in Ezra and, and Nehemiah. If you'll recall in Ezra chapter 1, we came to discover that God stirred the heart of Cyrus. If we were just pointing back to that. Stirred the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. He was a leading world ruler in 538 B.C. And he stirred him to begin sending uh, the Jewish people back to their homeland. See, the Jewish people had been in exile, many of them, because of their sin. And while Cyrus was not the one that captured them and had them dispersed. Uh, he kind of inherited them. And the Lord stirred his heart uh, and he began sending them back. See, 50 years earlier, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian ruler, in his quest to rule the world, had laid siege to Jerusalem, eventually decimated the city, decimated the temple, and he deported Many Jewish people, not all of them, but he deported many of them, sending them to Babylon and other parts of his kingdom. Uh, and the Babylonian king kingdom eventually fell to the Medes and Persians. And so Cyrus here, king of Persia, is dealing with this. We also discovered that God stirred the hearts of a group of people to return. In fact, 42,000. 42,000 of his people, he stirred their hearts uh, to go back and to resettle their homeland. But there was more to their mission than just going home. They were going home to rebuild the temple. The temple that had been destroyed because of their own sin. And not just, to, not just to restore a building, but this was to restore and reestablish temple worship. Last week we saw in chapter 3 how they began that process by rebuilding the altar. And it was after they rebuilt the altar, they began to offer regular sacrifices. We said uh, that none of the, none of, nothing that they would do would compare to that. You see, there had not been any sacrifices offered in 50 years. Had been no temple worship in 50 years. The people knew their sin needed to be atoned for. They were in need of God's forgiveness and they needed to be reconciled to Him. And their worship was their priority. And we concluded last week that that is same, the same thing is true of us today. The rebuilding of the altar was phase one of their building project. And then we read that they laid the foundation of the temple. And at the close of chapter 3, and I invite you to turn there, uh, we're there chapter 4, but at the close of chapter 3, we hear after the foundation of the temple has been built, and it's just the foundation, okay? There are no walls, there's no structure. Uh, everything we would understand as foundation would be in the ground. But after that foundation was restored, uh, there was great joy and celebration, and there was weeping for joy, but there was also weeping for sorrow about what once was, but was not again. And all of that was intermingled, and here's what we hear at the very end, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. That brings us to our text today, beginning in chapter 4. I want to give you, if you're taking notes, I want to give you six things that hopefully we'll be able to see. They may seem a little bit disconnected, but we will see how, uh, how tight they really are. Uh, first thing that we uh, will give consideration to in just a moment is that we need to be concerned about who we partner with in ministry. We should be a concern about who we partner with in ministry. You say, that's in that text? That's, yes, it's in the text. The second thing is that we should have an expectation of opposition. In other words, the people of God are going to be opposed. The work of God is going to be opposed. It always has been. 
It always has been. We, we see the first opposition, in fact, right in the garden. It's going to be opposed. The third thing that we want to see here is that in the course of our ministry, not all precautions are healthy. In the course of our ministry, not all precautions are healthy. The fourth thing that we're going to see is that God uses ordinary means to bring about His will. God uses ordinary means to bring about His will. He doesn't have to have any means. We'll, 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 we'll acknowledge that on the front end. Uh, and, and there's sometimes that the things that He does, uh, supernatural means. He doesn't have to have any means. He doesn't need anything. Uh, but He usually uses ordinary means. We'll look at those ordinary means uh, in the way of people in just a moment. Fifth, long periods of time may pass without divine intervention. Now, I want you to hear that even right now about your own life. Long periods of time will often pass without divine intervention. We're going to see how this text points to that and why. And then six, God alone is indispensable. God alone is indispensable. So let's begin in the text, chapter four. We'll do a little different than we normally do because normally, you know, we'll read a whole text. And we have three chapters here and we will probably read most of all three, but we're going to do it as we work through it together. So look at chapter four. We're going to begin reading uh, in verse one. And we'll read through verse 5. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Stop right there. Our first point is we need, to, we, we, we need to be careful about who we partner in ministry with. Um, you say, well, what's going on here? Uh, here they are. They have moved back. It looks like it would be all hands on deck. Anybody that would want to help them in the course of this work, it looks like that they would seek to partner with them. It looks like they would want to partner with them. Uh, and yet, what do we hear? We hear they say, no, no. They don't even do it apologetically. They just say, no, you have nothing to do with us in the building of a house or our God. I wonder why they said that. Well, let's turn over, if you will, to 2 Kings chapter 16. I believe that's right. 2 Kings. Chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. And we'll hear a little bit about what they knew and why they said no. And then we're going to kind of, kind of spread this out a little bit. Verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharim, and place them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. So kind of back back up and give you the background of what's going on here. Remember, 722 BC, the Assyrians came, uh, laid siege to the Samaria, laid siege to the city of uh, Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom. And they destroyed the city, 
And they deported, the people of the northern kingdom deported some of them. And this was customary during their day. It's whenever they would come and they would attack an area and they would take over a land. They would take the people, the residents of that land, and they would take them and carry them to another part of wherever they ruled. And then they would bring other people that they had attacked and they would take them and bring them back to that place and place them there. So this is what happened. The Assyrians came, they took the northern kingdom and they went to these other regions and they took people and they brought them and put them in and they took Israel out. And that's what is being said there. Now let's look on. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in the cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. That's critical there. They did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lines among them, which killed some of them. Apparently, this was severe enough. It's being recorded here in Scripture. It was severe enough that this gets back to the king of Assyria. Is that, and it's noted, they didn't fear the Lord the Lord has sent lions. Lions have killed the people, and apparently they're killing them pretty regularly here. I mean, this is not just one, one occasion of one lion killing one person. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent, meaning God, therefore he has sent lines among them, and behold, they're killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. And then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Now notice what else it says. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived and the men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth, the men of Kuth and say, and he made all of those and they feared the Lord, in verse 32, and they feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So that's the backdrop so when we come over here and we see that Zerubbabel and Jeshua are, are approached by these people who, yes, they had offered sacrifices to God. Yes, they had some kind of understanding of God. But because they were pagans and they were polytheists and all they were doing was trying to appease the God of that land from the very beginning and that had been the nature of their worship and now they are the adversaries because they do not worship God in the way that God has prescribed. I was thinking about that this week. It really does matter what we believe about God and it does matter what we do. It does matter what we believe about God, and it matters as to how we worship Him and what we do. Now, we're living in a culture today where the idea is that we are we're breaking down the walls. I was in a setting yesterday listening to a sermon, and the very first, the very first statement that was said early on, one, an example was used, some of you, you don't believe in God, but your, but your church experience has been is that you have a pastor who stood in a pulpit and talked to you about sin and talked to you about the judgment of God and in that incited fear in you to make some kind of a decision for God. And then the next statement was is that we are trying to create space for you who do not believe in God to receive the peace and the comfort that God has for you. 
And I'm listening and I'm saying, okay, I want to see where this goes because I had all indications of where it was going to go. And it went exactly where I thought it would go. At the end of the day, everybody was okay as long as they loved each other and everybody was okay as long as they were searching. It didn't matter that they found anything. It didn't matter just as long as they continued to search and just as long as they loved each other. And in our church culture today, that has become a prevalent teaching. It's become a prevalent teaching. We really do have to be careful with those that we partner and ministry with. Um, for those of you who have, for those of you who have come into the life of Oak Valley Church since we've been here, you know, in our membership matters class, we we work through the gospel, and and we talk about what it means to be a church member and who can be a church member and what is necessary for that to take place because there is a partnership, there is a covenant that we're coming into together and we don't do that to try to be exclusive. We do that because it matters what we believe. We're living in a culture today where those things are being torn down and we have to be careful in this case we see that Zerubbabel and Joshua and the other leaders of the families recognize, yeah, they say they worship God, and yes, they are sacrificing, and, and in our culture today, that would be all that would need to happen. That would be all that would need to happen. A simple profession that I believe in God, that would be all that would be necessary. But it wasn't for Zerubbabel, and it wasn't for Joshua, and it wasn't for the others because they understand they understood, as we saw last week, they went back to the Word of God and they sought to understand the truth about what God had said about trusting and believing in Him and what it meant to worship Him. Let's read on a little bit farther. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. But I was saying, and some of you have heard this saying, uh, uh, there's... Uh, uh, hell has no fury as that one who has been scorned. Well, they were scorned, and, and so here's what comes out of that. Okay, here's what comes out of that. They discouraged the people of Judah, and they made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, for those of you who have read Ezra, you will understand that there seems to be a shift here. So I want to help you with this because we're going to work through the rest of this text. But I want you to see what's going on. Verses 1 through 5 are specific to and are dealing with this time period when they first come back with that first wave of people and has to do with the building of the temple. Now we know when we get to Nehemiah, the issue then is the temple's already built, and when Nehemiah's coming back, and we'll get to that when we get to Nehemiah, but I want to help you see what's going on here. When we get there, the issue is the building of the wall of Jerusalem. The temple's already been rebuilt. Okay? Now I want you to turn to verse 24, and if you were breaking this down in time, right, even right here in this chapter, Verses 1 through 5 would end and you would not pick back up on the story of the temple until you get back to verse 24. In verse 24 it says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So if you will, take verses 1 through 5 and verse 24 and put them together and that's the story of the temple. Now I want us to go back and pick up at verse 6 because now we're dealing with a different time period. And you say, well, why is that? Well, now we're going and we're dealing with the time period of, of Ezra himself. We're dealing with the time period of Ezra himself. It seems to me as he's trying to help us understand 
that this thing of opposition is a continuing thing and will continue. And so he's trying to help, and the Holy Spirit is trying to help us see the broader piece of opposition to the work in the plan of God. And there's a reason for that, I believe. As we work through this, remember, we are still dealing with, and we will be dealing with over the course of the next, uh, the, the ne- this week and, and the next six weeks, we are dealing with roughly the last hundred years of the time period of the Old Testament. And what happens then? Well, what happens then is we have some record of history, but it is not recorded in the Scriptures. It's not recorded in the Scriptures. There is this big time of silence that goes on until John the Baptist comes back on the scene and God sends another prophet, the prophet John the Baptist. The point in that is, is that everything that's taking place here now is helping the people to understand, pointing to Christ, is helping the people to understand what they can expect in the course of their lives. And in Christ picks up on that and points them again. But the second point that we wanted to make is that we should expect opposition. So what we see here is that the people of the land in verse 4 discourage the people. We hear in verse 24 that not just discourage, but it's the work stopped. Stopped right then. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? We ended on a high note last week with the foundation being laid. And normally when, when we get a foundation laid, what's the next thing that happens? Man, we start seeing walls go up. And that was, that was kind of our expectation. It would have been mine in reading there. And it would have been for the people, except the opposition came, discouraged them. And it was enough of discouragement and there was enough of resistance that took place in the course of that event and all that went on. There was enough of resistance that it stopped their work because we know Back up there in verse 4 again, we know that they paid bribes to counselors to frustrate their purpose even with even during the days of King Cyrus. And Cyrus is the one who gave the decree, you go back and build it. He's the one that uh, furnished the materials for it. He was the one that pointed them in that direction and even gave them all the articles of the temple to carry back and to get the temple built and to get it up and going. And yet even now, God had stirred his heart. There is resistance that's coming back to him. And what often happens in the political scene is a a big thumbs up will be given on something. Somebody will come back and they'll have some resistance. And then what happens? Well, things stop. And that's what took place with Cyrus. And we see that it stays stopped. It stays stopped. Now, let's look on a little bit farther. And in the rain, and he's continuing, okay, he's picking up. He said, we have, we have opposition under, we have opposition with, under Cyrus. We have opposition at the beginning of Darius's term uh, as king. And the king after Darius is Ahasuerus. And so, and in the reign of Harassus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, so he is the one that comes after Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes comes, and Bishlam, and Mithradath, and Tabil, and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated, Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, and here is what he said. Rim the commander, uh, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble uh, Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. And this is a copy of the letter that they sent. Now let's listen to the letter. To Artaxerxes the king. Now this is, this is the opposition. We're not talking now about opposition to the temple. We're talking about opposition to the walls and the construction of the rest of Jerusalem. So we've jumped ahead, okay? We've jumped ahead about 50 years in fact. They've jumped ahead, or 
Ezra has jumped ahead in history about 50 years to Artaxerxes the king. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You'll find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition has stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid to waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession of the province beyond the river. So uh, here's the letter that's written in opposition. Notice some of the things that are stated there. And this is the opposition of the church today and opposition to the gospel. The gospel's dangerous. The church is dangerous. The church is exclusive. If you let the church in, then here's what's going to take place. Um, back here, some months ago, uh, we were sitting there under a, a covered shelter. Um, and had a group of uh, Muslims, and they were friends, uh, but many of them, most of them were in opposition to the gospel, and we were sitting there, and one of them, from a political standpoint, said, we want to see the church come here. We want to see the church uh, built here. And I am listening to this, and in the backdrop, I'm no, no, you really don't, but I'm listening to the flattery. They wanted the church to come. And finally, in the course of the conversation, I said, now, you do understand that when the church is planted here, that the church will preach the gospel, and the gospel will stand in opposition to everything that you believe and say that is true. And there was this kind of silence that came over uh, that group in that meeting. Why? I just wanted to be honest because... Because the church does stand in opposition to the world. And the church stands against sin. And the church preaches the gospel. And that in and of itself is exclusive. It's exclusive. And here is what they're doing. They're painting this picture with lies. And they're talking here about, uh, about the, the city being a, an evil city. They even get to the point, and you know they're dealing with this in a, in a political way. They say, if they ever get these walls built back up, they're going to resist you like they've resisted everybody else. And the tax revenue that you've been getting from them, they're going to refuse to pay you. And, uh, and it is going to hurt the economy of your nation. And there's all this flattery and stuff that's going on. And, and the king is listening Okay, the king is listening, Artaxerxes is listening to the letter, if you will. And then look at what happens in verse 17. So the king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shemshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And, and now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, that rebellion and sedition have been made in it, and mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river. And he's talking primarily here about David and Solomon, okay? He's backed all the way back up, and he has record of those things. And he says, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid, Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me and take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? 
And then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Chimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them stop. Now this was under the building of the walls. Ezra is giving us this picture to help us and to help those that were his original audience, giving them so that they would understand that God will be opposed and God's work will be opposed and God's people will be opposed. You know, one of the reasons that we spent time as we did uh, back here a few months ago in dealing with 1 Peter and talking about uh, living, under, live, living with trials and persecution uh, for the gospel's sake is because that still exists today. Jesus told his disciples to expect persecution, to expect opposition. We know that as we read through uh, the book of Acts, we see that the, the gospel is opposed. And yet what does not take place, it is never squelched. It never ends. And the point that is being made here is that this God who has this message, this God who has this redemptive work, is going to complete this work and it cannot be stopped. And even during times when it seems that pressure is being put on and opposition is coming hard and it seems as though it's going to be completely shut down, Ezra is trying to help the people see that this is not so. Remember, God had stirred the heart of Cyrus. God had stirred the heart of the people. And there are these periods of time where things stop. There are these periods of time when we face opposition and it seems as though we have to slow down. But we recognize that God is going to continue His work. Let's look at chapter 5. And this is going to be, going to be interesting because now we're in chapter 5 and we're going back to the building of the temple. The last word we had in verse 24, chapter 4, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. In the same way that the, the work on the walls of the city 50 years later stopped for a period of time, now Ezra comes back, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now look at verse 1. Now. What happens? What turns the tide? Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Take your copies of Scripture and turn a little bit deeper into the Old Testament there and turn to Haggai. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. If you get to Malachi, just back up a little ways. Turn to chapter 1. And, and let's hear what happens. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, I want you to hear the precision here. I know exactly what day all of this began to take place. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel and the son, the, the, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Okay? And we've had this period that nothing has taken place now for about 15 years. Everything has been suspended for about 15 years. No work has gone on. The foundation's laid. Nothing has been done. And you think, okay, they were under opposition. What happened in the course of this? Well, work was stopped because of the opposition. But then something else happens once the people stop work. Let's listen to it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, these people are not talking about the opposition. These people are referring to Zerubbabel and Jeshua and those 42,000 people who were there. 
In other words, when they ran in to this opposition, they then decide, well, now must not be the time to rebuild the temple. Notice what Haggai says. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It is time for you yourselves to dwell in your own paneled houses while this house lies in ruin. In other words, it's not time to rebuild the temple, but certainly it must be time for you to build your houses, for you to panel your walls. Notice what's happening here. While this house lies in ruins, now therefore says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does not put them in, he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain and the new wine and the oil on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. Then notice what happens. Zerubbabel and, and Jeshua, Joshua, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the governor, uh, the governor of Judah and the spirit of Joshua, the, the priest, Jeshua, the priest, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord their God on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. I'll go back to Ezra. I wanted you to hear that. Why? Because God does work through what we said earlier, ordinary means. And what is that? Well, in this case, it's the preaching of the word. He had two prophets. He had Haggai and he had Zechariah. And they both came and they said, you have taken this time and spent all of this time on yourself. In other words, you are serving yourself. You stepped away from the work of God. You stepped away from the building of the temple. The very thing that God brought you back to do, you ran into opposition and you stopped. And in the course of that, rather than being concerned now about coming back to it, you're waiting for a convenient time when there is no opposition. And the point here is that we cannot wait to do something when it becomes easy. We can't wait to be involved in the things of God when those things are convenient for us. We can't wait until we have all of our stuff settled to be about what God has called us to be about. And God uses ordinary means. He uses preachers. That's what he's using. Uh, did a little bit of research on Haggai. We're not studying Haggai, but it's just interesting. Uh, he preached for four months. He preached four messages in four months. That's the extent of our record of his ministry. But those four messages and those four months and Zechariah's two-year ministry did a work among the people, because we see what happens here uh, in chapter 5 and verse 1. They arose and they began to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And then notice what, notice what it says there in the last part of verse 2. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. The prophets of God were with them, supporting them. How were they supporting them? 
in the same way that we seek to support you each week as we come and we stand uh, and we open up God's Word and, and we read it and try to give some direction to our lives and, and direction to the ministry here, direction to the life of the church. God uses that in our lives. He used it there. They needed someone to come back and point them back. You said, well, this was the high priest, Jeshua. I know it was the high priest, Jeshua. But God used these other two men who were not high priests to come and to do what? To proclaim his message to them and to encourage them to get back to work. To get back to work. And let's read on in verse 3 of chapter 5. At the same time all of this was happening, Tatania, the governor of the province beyond the river, in other words, the, the, the governor of the area that they, that they lived under his rule, and uh, Shethar Bosnia and their associates came to them and spoke to them. And here's what they asked them. said, who gave you the decree to build the house and to finish the structure? In other words, they start back to work and basically, they start back to work without a permit. They start back to work without anybody's permission. That's what he's asking. So in other words, who's authorized you to begin this work again? We remember that this was to be shut down. This project is over with. And they want to know who gave you the authority to begin this work again. And then they ask them this question. And what are the names of you who are building this building? In other words, they seek to intimidate them. Who's in charge here? Who's working here? Who's working here? And I don't know how many of you have ever been on a construction job, but I grew up in construction and you had to have permits to work and they came up and you didn't have a permit and you were doing what you weren't supposed to be doing. Uh, they wanted to know who was in charge and they wanted to know who was working. And uh, it's just kind of a, uh, just, just kind of, an, an, and it is intimidating when that happens. It is intimidating when it happens. And they're being intimidated here, but remember their history. They were told to stop work. Now they start work again, not under the authorization of the government that caused them to stop. They begin work now because God's word has been preached to them and they know they need to be about that work. And so they come in to intimidate them and notice what their response is. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So God is using the means of two preachers. Now he's using the means of these leaders, Jeshua and Zerubbabel, to say what? Tell you what do. You go do what you have to do. We're going to keep on working until we hear different. And they just continue with this work. How does that apply to us today? We have areas that are closed. We have areas here in our community that don't want us as a church to be uh, in their space, that would not want us to share the gospel, that wouldn't want us to teach the gospel. A lot of times we are waiting for things to be comfortable and easy and convenient for us. We're waiting for folks to come and say, hey, it's okay to go here and okay to do this and okay to do that. We're waiting for them to embrace us and to receive us. Isn't that the way we operate most of the time in ministry? We're waiting for folks to like us and to love us, to embrace us, to bring us in. And I'm not talking about the opposite of that, of being offensive. But I'm saying, what has God's command, what, what, what does it, what does, how does it come to us? Well, it comes to us through His Word. And for a lot of us, a lot of us, probably all of us in some ways, uh, it's not convenient. It may cause a disturbance. And therefore, we don't do the work. And we stop it. Notice here that God is using the means through the preaching of His Word. He's using the means through good leadership. Let's read on. This is a copy of the letter to Tatania, the governor of the province beyond the river, uh, and his associates, the governors, who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. Now, notice this is Darius. He's the king that, that, that came after Cyrus, and we're in his second year. 
they sent him a report in which was written as follows, To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah to the house of the great God. It's being built with huge stones and timbers laid in the walls. In other words, all this big work's going on and, and they don't have permission to do it. That's their point. To the house of the great God. It's being built with huge stones and timbers laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. And then we asked those elders and spoke to them, who gave you the decree to build the house and to finish the structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. And here's, here's what's the reply. Get this. We're the servants of the God of heaven and earth. We are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, a Chaldean who destroyed this house and carried away the people of Babylon. However, in the year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he made governor. And he said to him, you take these vessels and go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. And then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon. So to see whether the decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of the house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this manner. When asked... Who's giving you the authority? God. Who are you? What's the names of the people? We are the people of God. Go back over there and look there again. Uh, we are the servants of God of heaven and earth. And we're rebuilding the house that was built many years ago. In other words, we are serving God who is not just our God, but he is the God of what? Heaven and earth. He's over you. He's over Darius. He was over Cyrus. He was over Nebuchadnezzar. They acknowledge that God is over all things. And then what happens? We'll look in chapter 6. Darius the king made a decree and search was made in Babylon. So he went and looked up the papers. He looked up and he looked back into history. And what did he find? He looked back in the house of the archives where the documents were stored in uh, Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media. And a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. And it goes on and even spells out that Cyrus the king had given the dimensions of the original building and gives it back to them and say, you build it back. In other words, he was telling them, don't go and skimp on anything. That was great structure. You go back and put it back just like it was. Notice how God uses that government. And he doesn't always use government. In fact, a lot of times he uses government to oppose us. But there are times that God uses government, uses leaders, uses preachers, uses his servants to accomplish his work. How does that help us today? Well, it helps us understand that if you're here today and you are a believer, then God has a work for you and you are his servant and he has given us his word on what to do and how to work, how to work in ministry what we should be doing in the course of ministry. He uses you. Not just that he can use you. He intends to use you. And I would just ask you, 
that what's happening in your life today. And the Lord Jesus Christ was commissioned his disciples. He empowered them. He sent them out to work. At Pentecost, they received the power of the Holy Spirit. We have since when we trust in Christ. We received the Spirit of God in us. For what? For redemptive purposes. And in the course of that redemptive purpose is for us to be about that ministry. Let's look on a little bit farther. In verse 6, Now therefore, Tantania, the governor of the province beyond the river, and your associates, the governors who were in the province uh, beyond the river, and this, was, this was the word that came from Darius. Keep away. In other words, he recognized that they had come with an expectation for him to uphold what had happened before and to cease work and to stop work. He recognized that. And he tells them, no, 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 notice how God works through him, keep away, let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews, notice God's provisions here, the means. Notice what he says. He says, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on this site. Moreover, this is huge, moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of Jews for rebuilding the house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. They had already received monies. They had already received provisions from Cyrus. You know what he's saying? Whatever the job cost overruns are, whatever it is they need, you give it to them. And by the way, you give it to them out of what you are receiving as taxes. You see how God is at work using these means? Paul's here. And I know our time is, is close to being up, but I want to make these two comments. One, who is the, uh, who is the hero in this picture? It's not Cyrus and it's not Darius. It's not Haggai, it's not Zechariah, it's not Zerubbabel, not the people, it's not Jeshua the priest, it's God. He is the one who is indispensable in everything. He stirred the hearts of the people, his eye was on the people, he stirred the hearts of Zerubbabel, stirred the hearts of Jeshua, stirred the heart. Cyrus works now in the heart of Darius. Take God out of the picture and you have nothing. Let me say this about our lives in closing. When we take God out of the picture of our lives, we have nothing. And yet when we hear from the psalmist as we did this morning, had it not been for you, O Lord, had it not been for you. That's the point today. If it were not for God, we would be nothing. Now how does that point us now in a direction to kind of go back to the beginning, if you will. We were back over there. We had a group of people who said, hey, we worship your God. We sacrifice to your God. We want to, we, we want to be a part of this building project. And we said, no, 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 you're not. Why? Because they were not of God. They build the temple from the beginning of chapter 6 to the end of chapter 6 covers a period of about three and a half years. So we're at 516 when we get, we're at 516 when we get to the end of chapter 6, we started at 538, 539, 
That's the period of time that has taken place in between there and the temple is completed. And what is the very first thing that happens when this temple is completed? Look, if you will, in verse 19. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. The very first act when they start construction of the temple is the building of the altar, pointing to their need of forgiveness. The very first act when they complete the temple is to do what? To observe the Passover. Why? They needed again be reminded of the atoning work of the sacrificed blood and how it saved their ancestors' lives and how the continuation of that sacrifice pointed to God's saving work in Christ. We don't have time to go and look at what Zechariah has to say, but everything that Zechariah... Haggai was just kind of a... He was just a, a plain speaker. He was just plain speaker. Zechariah, God gives visions to him. Those visions pointing uh, to Christ. But here we see that their very first act is that of the Passover. For the priests and Levites had purified themselves together... All of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles. In other words, they couldn't even offer these sacrifices themselves because they were unclean. They offered these sacrifices there, and this would be the beginning of when these sacrifices at Passover would be offered to them to do what? Pointing toward their sin and their need of forgiveness and blood needing to be spilled for their salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ spilled his blood for our salvation. The question is in that, and we have read about it, we've heard about it, we've sung about it this morning, but the question in that would be, is that blood applied to you? Has that blood been applied to you? In other words, has God dealt with you in your heart in such a way that you recognize, man, I am a wretched sinner and I'm unclean and I need to be forgiven and the only hope that I have of forgiveness rests in the atoning work of Christ and His blood. Has that been applied to you? I have an opportunity to come to the table this morning. Not because of anybody coming down here and partaking of the elements today that would some way save you. But it is to remind us again of what Christ has done for us in going to the cross bearing the wrath of God, being made sin, him who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could worship God, so that we could come to him and enjoy him and his presence today and forever. He works through us in ordinary means. He worked through Christ in a supernatural way. Because he was a supernatural God. Giving us his life. His life for mine. His life for yours. If you trust in him. He takes God's wrath. He gives you life. Everything about what we looked at today was pointing ahead to Christ. That was the reason why the significance of the temple being built was just spotlight being put on it. 
Say it's just a building. No, it's not a building. It's pointing to a greater temple. A temple that Christ would build in you. And then use you in his redemptive work. We'll pray in a moment and ask Mike if he would come and prepare the table. If you're here today and you have trusted Christ, not just that I believe in God. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you see him and recognize him and know him as the one who has atoned for your sin and you've trusted him and you have been baptized and you're in good standing with your church. We want to invite you to come. And as you come and as you receive the elements and go back to your seat, I want you to hold on to this picture that we have of this temple that ultimately is your heart where God dwells being made possible by the blood of Christ. Father, thank you for your goodness toward us in Christ. Thank you, Father, for your grace toward us. Thank you today, Father, that when we, we see the, all the things that you have done in the course of stirring the hearts of people over all these generations and then stirring our hearts to see and to recognize your glory in Christ and working in us to make us temples where you live and dwell, where you work. Father, we just look to you today and say thank you. Thank you for your grace toward us. In Jesus' name, amen.